morning. I wonder how many of you have had an experience like this? How many of you, after having grown up, have gone back to a place that you haven't been to since you were a child? Maybe like, maybe your childhood home or the school that you went to as a kid, maybe the ballpark where you spent like every Saturday for decades, right? But you haven't been there since you were a kid. How many of you have gone back to a place like that that was familiar from your childhood and you looked around and you just thought to yourself, I remember this all being a lot bigger. You remember that? You had an experience like that. I was talking to Mark Smith about that this morning. He said his backyard, the backyard from his home that he grew up in as a child, he thought it was enormous. And there was this giant boulder that he would jump off of and just fly through the air. And he went back with his dad to visit the home. And it was just a little bitty rock on the ground. He said his dad said, I think you're disappointed, right? I was talking to Justin. He was talking about in West Texas. I didn't know they had trees in West Texas, but a pecan tree where he had a giant tree fort but he went back to see it, and it was just a couple of pieces of two-by-four and like a, a piece of plywood, and that was just all it ever was. It's surprising to us. It's kind of funny and surprising when we go back and we realize as we grow in stature, the things around us seem to be smaller. That happens. It's also interesting how when we grow in the knowledge of God, when we grow in faith, the opposite of that happens. When we grow to really know God for who he is, we discover again and again that he's bigger than we realized and that we're a little bit smaller than we ever thought we were. How many of you have heard the, the kids' ministry song? Maybe your kids learned it in preschool. It says, uh, it talks about our God being big. It starts, my God is so big. Do you know that one? So strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. Did someone, there it was. I was waiting for the, for you. I think about when, when we're kids, how easy it is to think of God as being big right? We sing songs about it. That's all we would know, that he's big. But I found for a lot of people, as they get older, they begin to think of God as being smaller than he actually is. And when that happens, I think it happens only because they begin to fashion God in their own image. You realize we have a tendency to do that. We try to form God in the image of man, of ourselves or of some other person in our life. We try to form God in the image of our parents or a boss or some worldly leader, or some teacher. And then the God that we have in mind is this image that we've made that's not really who he is. It's not the God of the Bible, but it's an image of God made in the form of humanity. And then it makes sense to us why someone, as they got older, if they did that, might view God as being just kind of insignificant, not that big of a deal. I read a book called Not God Enough by J.D. Greer. Here's what he said. He said, as Americans... We prefer a God who is small. Hang on. A God who is small because we want a God we can manage, predict, and control. That kind of God feels safe to us. We can understand him. We can explain him. He doesn't embarrass us, confuse us, contradict us, or make us mad. But you can relate to that a little bit, right? But this simply is not the God we encounter in the Bible. The God of the Bible is the opposite of small and manageable. He's big. He's bigger than big. He's bigger than all the words that we try to use to describe big. He defies our ability to categorize or understand or describe him. Most Americans want a God who is only slightly bigger, slightly smarter version of ourselves. But the God of the Bible is something altogether different. And here's the irony, he says. Only a God like that is capable of explaining life's mysteries, of giving us a real sense of purpose in this world, and of igniting our passions. 
It's like Evelyn Underhill said. She said, a God who is small enough to be understood is not big enough to be worshipped. I love that. I love that. And there's a choice that we have to make. We have to make a choice between are we going to try to imagine God an image of self just a little bit better than me, or are we going to let the Lord be the Lord? And I want to look at two stories today. If you want to grab your Bible, turn to Daniel chapter 3 in the Old Testament. Daniel 3 will pick up where we left off last week. And when you find Daniel 3, I want you to mark it. I want you to save your place there. And also turn to Acts chapter 4 and, and have both ready. We're going to go back and forth a lot today because when I looked at Daniel 3 to pick up from last week, I found that it reminded me a lot of, of Acts chapter 4 in that story that we looked at earlier this year. And you say, how so? Well, it's a good question. Thanks for asking. In both stories, we've got God's people facing some kind of power in the world, some powerful person who is giving them a command and a threat if they don't obey the command that lies in complete contradiction to God's will and God's way for their life. In both cases, there's a choice between an earthly leader and the culture that he is leading or forcing upon people, and a choice between following that or following the Lord our God. In both cases, Acts 3 or sorry, Daniel 3 and Acts 4, there's a direct command. This leader says, you're going to do this or else. And this person has to decide, is, the, or is, is this guy, is he bigger? Is his command stronger? Is his promise more sure? Or is my God bigger? Is he more sovereign? And his word more powerful and his promise more sure in my life? I'm going to start with Daniel 3. And then we're going to do a lot of yo-yoing back and forth. So we'll pick up from last week. Last week, we heard about Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Abednego, right? Not Abednego. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we found that these are four Jewish captives living in Babylon. We saw a few weeks ago when we were in Jeremiah, and we looked back in the Psalms, and we saw how the, the people of God had been pursued by the Babylonians for over a decade. The Babylonians were swarming over Judah. They came in and they destroyed the temple. They destroyed Jerusalem. They killed their children. They took thousands and thousands of people from their homes, from their way of life, and they forced them 700 miles across the Middle East. And now they're living as refugees in Babylon. And they're surrounded by not just the Babylonians, but they're surrounded by exiles from all of these other nations that Babylon had just swallowed up. And when we get here to chapter 3 and it opens, the king of Babylon, his name is Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar has built this nine-story golden idol and he's forcing all of the people to bow before it. And it's a little ironic that he's doing this at the beginning of chapter 3 because what we missed last week, we ended with chapter 1. If you went on your own and read chapter 2, we found that King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream about a gigantic statue. And in that dream, he didn't know what it meant, so he asked Daniel, one of these Jewish exiles, what it meant, and Daniel interpreted the dream for him. And Nebuchadnezzar's dream went like this. He saw a gigantic gigantic statue stretching up into the sky, and at the top of the statue was a head made of gold. And Daniel looked at Nebuchadnezzar and said, that head made of gold represents you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Under the head of gold, there was silver, bronze, iron, and clay feet. And Daniel said, let me describe all of these things mean these different nations. They represent nations of the earth who currently sit under your control, but they will rise up and in turn, each of them will reign over the earth. And then Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar describes his dream that he says a stone, and he describes it as a stone not made with hands, would come in and smash 
the feet of this gigantic statue reaching into the sky and blow them away. And then all at once, the tower would just explode into fragments. And he says at this point in his dream, the wind carried these fragments away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that was not carved by hands that struck the statue became a mountain and it filled the entire earth. And Daniel looked at the king and said, well, I'll describe this to you too. This describes the divine kingdom in which the son of God is king. And he comes in and he will abolish all other kingdoms and he will reign over the entire earth. And chapter two ends with Nebuchadnezzar in complete amazement. Here's what he says to Daniel. Your God truly is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets. He's in amazement. And then we get to the beginning of chapter 3. And we don't know if it's been months or even a decade has passed. But some time has passed. And what do we find Nebuchadnezzar doing after this dream has been interpreted? He's built a 90-foot statue of gold representing himself now. Notice it's all gold, not just a head of gold, but the whole thing. And so he's forgotten the lesson of his dream. He's forgotten it, and he's made it worse by saying, I'm going to double down. I'm not just the head, but I'm going to be the whole thing. I will have no rival. My kingdom will have no ending. And so he calls, Nebuchadnezzar calls for all of the peoples, the leaders, the, the representatives of his kingdom together at the foot of this giant 90-foot tall statue, uh, all to his glory, and to come and, and be there for the dedication. Chapter 3, verse 4 They've gathered, and the herald loudly proclaims, To you, all of you people, the command is given, you peoples, nations, and populations of all languages. At the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of musical instruments, you are to fall down and worship, worship the golden statue that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be thrown into the middle of a fiery, blazing furnace. I want you to try to envision this for just a moment. There's a 90-foot statue up into the sky. You can barely see the top, and thousands of people have gathered along this desert plain, and they're standing in front of it, and they're just still in silence looking up at it. And into the silence, suddenly a burst of noise as instruments everywhere play, and everyone drops to their knees, faces to the ground in fear. On one side is the king and maybe his guardsmen. On the other side is the fiery furnace reminding them of the severity of the command. So when they hear the noise, they're down on the ground, except for three figures that are standing still and firm and quiet in the middle of the sea of bowing people. And who are they? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now pause that story and, and come to Acts chapter 4, and we've been there already this year, so I'll go quickly here. Peter and John are the main people in this story, and in Acts 3, they're going to the temple, and it's the hour of prayer, and we're not sure exactly what their purpose was, but they're headed to the temple, and as they get there, they find a man who had been paralyzed since he was a child. He'd never been able to walk, and they approach him, and they speak with him, and they had compassion on him, and they heal this man in a way that he, who had never been able to walk, gets up, and he's strong, and he's healed, and he can walk. And people noticed, and crowds began to gather around Peter and John, so they began to preach the gospel, and they began to call all people to place their faith and their trust 
in Jesus. And in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, While they're speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them. That means they grabbed them and they took them away and they put them in prison. Pause that story. Go back to Daniel 3. So we're going to do this for a little bit. Hang on with me. Daniel 3. Three men are standing. Everyone else is on the ground. Someone looks up and begins to notice. These guys are not on their faces doing what was said that they had to do. They were not following the command of Nebuchadnezzar. And so some begin to speak out against them. Verse 12. These men, O king, they've disregarded you. They don't serve your gods, nor do they worship the golden statue which you've set up. So Nebuchadnezzar, in a rage and anger, gave orders to bring these three, and these men were brought before the king. And he says to them, if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Go back to Acts 4. The powers of the world are looking down upon Peter and John. They've been arrested, they've been imprisoned, they've been punished, and now they're being stared at. And the powers say to them, what shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live here, and we can't deny it. But so that it won't spread any further, we'll warn them to speak no longer any, uh, to any man in this name, in the name of Jesus. When they summoned them, they commanded them, do not speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus Christ. And with that command came the weight of the council, the weight of the religious police, the weight of the courts, and the weight of, if you don't do as we say, it's going to hurt you. Go back to Daniel 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Here's the crazy, amazing verse. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Acts 4, verse 19 but Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, will you be the judge of that? For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard with Jesus Christ. Do you have whiplash yet? Can you see the parallels between these two stories as they're building? In Acts 4, Peter and John have a command, and the command is stop talking about Jesus, and the threat is, or else you are coming to immediate harm. They had already been taken, they had already been imprisoned, they had already been punished. They don't know exactly what's coming next, but as they look at this group, they know these are the, these are the same people who had put Jesus on the cross. They have the powers of the world giving them the threats and the commands of the world. But at the same time, as they look upon all of these people looking down on them, they also have the commands and the promises of Jesus ringing in their heads and reigning in their hearts. They had the commands like the Great Commission, right? Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, right? baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I commanded, commanded you. They had the command of Acts 1.8. Jesus told them, don't leave Jerusalem because the Holy Spirit is coming. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my what? 
witnesses. That's the command. You are going to be my witnesses. Jesus in John 17, he prayed for them while they were in his presence. He said, Father, they are not of this world just as I am not of this world, yet I am leaving and they will remain here. Why are they going to remain here? They're not of this world, but they're going to be in this world so that they will be my witnesses. They had these commands in their heads and reigning in their hearts. They also had the promises of Jesus that, lo, I will be with you always. I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. They had that promise of Jesus. They had the promise of Jesus that though you may suffer and have some persecution now, you will reign with me forever. Those who are brokenhearted will be comforted. Those who suffer for my name, they will have the kingdom. The kingdom will be theirs. They will be alongside me in the kingdom that reigns forever. They had the promises and they had the commands of Jesus reigning in their hearts. And they're looking down the barrel right now of a choice. And the choice is, don't you talk about Jesus or go and talk about me. And they have the competing allegiances that they've got to fight through in their lives. And their perspective as they look at this moment is, you know, I'm looking at the, the council and, and they really don't look that impressive to me when I look upon the, the countenance of Christ. Jesus is sovereign. He reigns over death. He's bigger. His commands are stronger. They're better. They're more powerful. His promises are even more sure. They may hurt us for a moment, but Jesus promised he'll be with us forever. And so they look at the council and they say, look, I don't know. You decide. What's better? Do I listen to some men or do I listen to the Lord my God? You know what? We'll end the conversation here. I can't stop talking about what I've seen and what I've heard in Jesus. They know even from watching Jesus, the resurrection life only comes after death. So he's big enough to live for, and he's big enough to die for, because they believe in the promise that they will live with him, joyful and abundant forever. So they probably would agree with Paul when he said to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so there's no way at this point that they're going to bow to these human men and to this culture that they're leading, to the power structures of the world, because they submit to a greater power who's greater and kinder than anyone who stands before them. Daniel 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they have a command, and the command is you're going to bow now before this idol that represents me as being the supreme and sovereign in the universe. And the threat is, or else you will be burned alive. So they have the commands and they have the threats of the powers of this world, but they also have the commands and the promises of God. What do they have? They have the Ten Commandments. What's the first commandment? You remember this? There's only one God. You should worship no other God. And then the second one, remember this? You've got to cut the idols out of your life. You won't bow before any idols. That's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar is telling them to do. Break the first and the second commandment. They know these. These rule in their hearts. And not just the commands of God, but the promises of God. Just before the Ten Commandments, God told them his promise by revealing his character. In, in Exodus 20, verse 2, he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I brought you out of the house of slavery. He says, I am Yahweh. I am the God. I am Elohim. I am your God, and my character is to be a rescuing one for you and all of the commandments that I'm about to lay out for you. I'm giving them to you that you might walk in freedom and not go into slavery once again, that you would not just be set free, but continue remaining free by walking in delight with me and my will and my ways, and it will be a blessing to you. 
And so they look at this and they reflect on the character of God and they reflect on the, the command, the law of God. And in this moment, they've got to be thinking, why would we undermine, why we would, would we walk away from these commands and these promises in the goodness and the character of God just to become slaves under the cruelty of this megalomaniac Nebuchadnezzar? Why would we do this? And so they look at, at Nebuchadnezzar and it's as if they say, I know that you're powerful and I know that you can hurt me right now. But our God is the God. And Nebuchadnezzar, you're just, a, you're just a man. And your word and your command and your threat, they can burn us. But you come to an end. And Daniel had already told him this in the dream in chapter 2. You come to an end. Our God has no end. And his promises are certain. And so they look at him and say, we don't even need to answer this, do we? <laughs> We're not going to bow. And in both cases... You look at these stories, their faith resided in their God being bigger and better in power and plan and in promise than the conflict and the confrontation that stood before them as they were not of this world, but living in this world. There's a book by Phil Yancey called Where is God When It Hurts? I don't know if you've read that book before, but it tells the, the story of Brian Sternberger, who was a national... Uh, pole vaulting track star. By age 19, he was in the sports headlines all the time. By age 19, he was undefeated in outdoor competition in the pole vault. By age 19, he set a world record. And three weeks after he set that world record, while he was training, he had a bad fall and landed on his neck and he broke his neck and he was paralyzed immediately. And he couldn't move any longer. Brian was a Christian. Brian had faith in the Lord. This is one of those moments where his faith was being, was being put to the test by the pressures and the problems of life. He was interviewed just a few weeks after the accident, and here's what he said about a biblical faith. Brian said, having faith, it's a necessary step to one of two things. Being healed is one of them. The other is this, peace of mind if healing doesn't come now. And either will suffice for me. Sounds like Daniel, Shadrach, or sounds like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel, doesn't it? It says, my God is able, but even if he doesn't, yeah, you're just a man. We won't go your way. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, we are not going to serve your gods. We're not going to worship the golden image that you have set up. Phil Yancey went to visit Brian Sternberger 10 years after his accident, and some things had changed. He still loved the Lord, but he had been surrounded by a group of Christians, but they were well-meaning and very wrong-minded Christians who looked at Brian and told him, God wants you to walk now, and your problem is you haven't had enough faith. And Brian believed them, and he began to shift in his mind. And where there once were two directions faith would take him, one is healing now and the other is peace of mind if healing only comes later when the Lord comes to return him home, right? Now there's only one solution. The Lord wants me to walk now, and I haven't had enough faith. I just need to work harder to have more faith. And so what happened is the object of his faith has changed. Do you see that? He used to have faith in God's presence, in his goodness, in his kindness, in his mercy, in his comfort. But now he has faith in faith and his ability and his strength to muster up enough faith for a miracle. Here's what Yancey said. 
As Brian struggled to find enough human faith, he forgot that God is sovereign. And in result, he lost his peace of mind. I want you to hear that story because when I think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we know what happens then in Daniel 3 is that they are put into the fiery furnace. Remember the story? How many of you are Sunday school kids? You, you know the story, right? They go into the fiery furnace. Everyone thinks they're going to get burned up immediately. In fact, the guys who open the door, they're burned up and they die. But then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown in there and someone's kind of looking and I guess there's a window or something and they're going, hey, it looks like they're walking around in there. We didn't hear any screams, right? And then they open the door and bring them out and they don't even smell like smoke. We know that part of the story. We know in Peter and John's story, they were being threatened. Don't you talk about Jesus anymore or else. And they said, well, we can't help it. And they said, okay, well, go ahead and you just leave now. Just, you know, we don't like it. You better stop. And I wanted you to hear this because we don't get the rest of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's story. We don't know how long their lives lived. But we do know with Peter and John that Peter eventually, while they were released then, Peter eventually was killed for his faith. He was martyred for his faith. John was sentenced to, to be a slave laborer on the island of Patmos, where he received the vision and wrote the book of Revelation. But we know that ultimately, for both Peter and for John, the same is true, that John 14, 3, Jesus said, I will go away and prepare a place for you, but I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you will be also, that was their experience. We know that. And we know that they probably took comfort in, in something that Paul wrote that would be true of them then and then even now, that Romans 8, verse 18, that the sufferings of this present life are not even to be compared with the glory that is to be when we're at home with the Lord. I've often said it's like a thimble full of water compared to the ocean, the suffering in all of our days in life compared to the glory that awaits for all who are in Christ. We know that's their ultimate experience, that pain and suffering and conflict and confrontation are part and parcel a part of the planet that we live on, and Christians are not exempt from that. God's people are not exempt from difficulty and suffering. In fact, God's people will always be confronted with the idols of this world, will always, in some ways, in some places, be criticized by the people and the power of this world, will always be challenged to worship the idols and the false gods of this world, and the pressure to do so, to bend and to twist and to entangle ourselves, will never go away from us as long as we walk on this earth. Yet, we can know this, the Lord will always with us. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. And as God's people looking at stories like this of God's faithfulness, we can be reminded of that. In Daniel 3 verse 24, Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded when he found, when he found that they were still walking around in there. He looked up and he said to his counselors, wait a second, was it not three men that we threw bound into the middle of the fire? And they replied, absolutely, O king. And he responded, look, I see four men untied and walking about in the middle of the fire unharmed, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. God's people can be confident that God will always be with us. He gives us this lineage of things that have happened in the past that our faith would be reminded time and time again that the God who was with them then is the God who is with us now. God's presence is greater and his plan is better than you could ever imagine. Look at verse 26. 
Then Nebuchadnezzar came to the door of the furnace of the blazing fire, and he said, he calls out, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God. The man who built a 90-foot golden statue. What does it take to build a 90-foot golden statue of yourself, to call people in from all over the region, to bow before it? And now he says, you servants of the Most High God, come here. Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants who put their trust in him, violating my command, and they've surrendered their bodies rather than serve or worship any god except their own. King Nebuchadnezzar then makes a decree that any people, nation, or population of any language that speaks anything offensive of the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego should be torn from limb to limb and their houses made a rubbish heap because there is no other God who is able to save in this way. Whoa! When God's people humbly, firmly, and quietly will not divide their allegiance between God's will and His way and the will and the way of the world. Where is God when it hurts? He's with us. He's working in us, and he's turning things from bad to good. I love this line from Yancey's book. He said, we feel pain as an outrage. You agree with that? We feel pain as an outrage. Guess what? Jesus did too, which is why he performed miracles of healing. In Gethsemane, he did not pray, thank you for this opportunity to suffer, Father, but rather he pled desperately for an escape. And yet, he was willing to undergo suffering in service of a higher goal. And in the end, he left the hard questions, if there be another way to the will of the Father. And he trusted that God could use even the outrage of his death for good. I think Daniel 3 and Acts 4 have a lot more to do with our modern context than we might realize on a lot of days. And there are two really massive questions. I didn't make any points in this sermon. It was kind of pointless, right? Until now. (laughs) Until I lift two questions from these stories that I just really want you to chew on this week. I'm not going to give you answers. I just want you to chew on questions. How big is your God? And in what have you put your faith? How big is your God? And where is your faith These questions have to be faced as we look at the Nebuchadnezzars of our lives. And when I say that, yeah, I mean, there are people and pressures and powers and cultures that are Nebuchadnezzar-like in our lives. But I even mean this, all of the spiritual troubles that we have in life, like, like fear and doubt and insecurity and unhappiness and apathy, I think all come from having a picture of God that is just too small. They come from viewing God in the image of just a little bigger and a little smarter than us, not from knowing the God of the Bible. If you and I think that God is just slightly bigger, slightly smarter version of ourselves, it will not sustain your faith when you experience a Nebuchadnezzar in life. It just won't. It'll crumble. But if we come to see the God of the Bible how big he is, bigger than we could categorize or define, a God who is 
he was small enough to understand, he wouldn't be big enough to worship. If we found a God who was big enough to mystify our eyes, he'd be bigger than any, like, playing at religion. He'd be bigger than any power games, power struggles that people are always having in this world. He'd be big enough to carry all of our cares and all of our sorrows. He'd be big enough to deal with all of our intellectual questions, all of our doubts, all of our fears. He'd be big enough to deal with all of our emotional struggles. He'd be big enough to live for. He'd be big enough to live for in the face of trouble. He'd be big enough to die for, knowing that ultimately with him, every tear is wiped away and all things are made new. How big is your God? And where is your faith? Because to the extent that you truly know Him, the more you know Him, the more willingly and joyfully you will walk in obedience to Him no matter what may come because you know that He's with you and that you know that His power and His plan and all of His promises are certain. No points, no answers just questions to chew on. How big is your God? Where does your faith stand? Can I pray for you? God forbid that we speak of you at all, we think of you at all, without a humble reverence in our heart. You're God. Yahweh Elohim. The one God in majesty and might and the one who's come near to us and said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And so would you help us, Holy Spirit, to glimpse just a, a bit more of the majesty and the glory that our eyes would grow big and our hearts would swell as we could get a glimpse glory, at the kindness, at the, the dichotomy, of great and good at the same time, and the love of God for his people. We don't pray to be tougher Christians. We pray to have better sight of the big God. We don't pray for strength to endure. We pray for hearts that are overflowing with joy because we've come near to the God of us all. We don't pray for wisdom to know how to thread the needle between being in but not of this world. We pray that our lives would be so consumed with the love of Christ. The love of Christ would control us. Jesus in, Jesus out. Would you help lift our eyes and lift our hearts that we might see you and see ourselves rightly in reflection of you and that your word your promise would reign in our hearts and overwhelm all of the pressures of life here and now. Not as individuals, but as your church. In Jesus' name.